0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am your host, John Yargo. W. H. Auden once said, Poetry makes nothing happen. Auden's quote has been used for so many purposes, it might be worth remembering what he meant. Auden's line is importantly from a poem memorializing W. B. Yeats, a politician, and a poet. Auden meant that despite Yeats's poetry... Ireland still has her madness and her weather still, end quote. Gates's poetry didn't stop suffering, but Auden acknowledges that poetry is a way of happening that survives and persists. Today's guest, Caroline Levine, has written a brilliant new book, The Activist-Humanist, Form and Method in the Climate Crisis. As I read the book, I began asking myself in the manner of Auden, Does literary criticism make nothing happen? What kind of something might attention to social forms within aesthetic criticism make happen? I'm excited to talk to Caroline Levine, who is the David and Kathleen Ryan Professor of Humanities at Cornell University. Previously, she was Professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's the author of Forms, Whole Rhythm Hierarchy Network which won the James Russell Lowell Prize from the Modern Language Association, as well as the Serious Pleasures of Suspense, Victorian Realism, and Narrative Doubt, and Provoking Democracy, Why We Need the Arts. The Activist Humanist is published by Princeton University Press. Welcome to the podcast, Caroline. Thank you. I want to begin by asking you to give a capsule summary of The Activist Humanist. What is the argument of this book?
1: Um, Well, you know, we, I guess those of us in the humanities know that what we mostly do in our classrooms is we try to get people to stop and think, right, to pause and look around and not just rush into their careers or into action. And we think of artworks as being really great for kind of stopping and waking us up. But I just started to get worried that we, that's not enough in the climate crisis, that we actually have to change things and we have to change them quickly and if we're just kind of stopping and asking people to pause and think are we getting in our own way you know do do we as humanists actually have more to offer and do we have ways of thinking that could help us all of us solve some of the problems of climate change and so as soon as I started to think that way I thought oh right we we're always stopping before the moment of action and why do we do that and and how could we start? thinking about what we know as contributing to action in the world. And it turned out to be a hard argument to make, harder than I expected to think about the connection between studying the arts and taking political action.
0: And one of the things I find really fascinating about your work is often formalism is pitted against activist scholarship or sort of social, socially engaged scholarship. And you lean right into a sort of formalist or aesthetic engagement as fundamental to um, activism and political engagement, um, is a big part of this book and your previous books. Some words that you have used to capture form are whole, enclosure, rhythm, pathway, routine. So I want to invite you to do a formalist analysis of the activist humanist. What affordances might this book have, both in the intentions that you had in mind or in the uses? that you could not have intended? Oh, I love that question.
1: Um, it's it's a book that I rewrote several times, kind of start to finish, to try to figure out whether a book can actually inspire action at all, right? That's kind of the million dollar question for those of us who care about action, right? Does writing anything actually lead people to do anything? Um, and so one of my experiments in the book is to include a workbook, which is just like a practical, like, if you want to get involved in political action, here's how you could start. Because uh, that was one of the things that was stopping me is that I didn't know what meaningful uh, activism was. Like, does it make a difference if I go stand outside in front of a building and chant things? Does it make a difference if I write to my senator? You know, what actually makes a difference in the world? And so part of the structure of the book was to try to think that problem. Uh what what could get people to take action? And when I finished the book or was finishing it, I mentioned that to one of my literary critic friends and she said there's no way you can get people to take action. It just you can't you can't get people to do it. And I thought, well then what are we doing, right? Like any of us who talk about politics or think about political action or engagement. Um so it's to say that the form of the book in some ways, may never produce the kind of action that I would have loved for it, which is to say now people can use it. Although I do imagine it in classrooms that if people assign the workbook part of the book, that classes full of students might actually engage in action, you know, that that might be one of the affordances of it. Um, But so um, I thought about kind of who is the audience for this book. And I think I struggled with that, too. Like, who's going to take up a book that's really by a literary critic and for other humanities scholars and students um, but is really about taking action on the climate crisis and um, my editor at Princeton Press really urged me to write a book that was for humanities people like you know let's talk to each other about what it is that gets in our way and so you know in some some sense I limited the audience on purpose um, and tried to Think about, you know, how is it that we think about politics? How is it that we think about art objects? And what chapters could I write that would move my own thinking from A to B? And so if I can carry you along with me, then I'm very happy about that. But I know there are no guarantees.
0: (laughs) Okay. So I think this leads really well into my next question, which is like the things, the ideas, the premises, they get in our own way and uh, I hope I'm um, paraphrasing you accurately, but you see anti-instrumentality as stalking contemporary academic writing. This argument is something like, these are my words, literary criticism should unsettle social and political orthodoxy, but must refuse to articulate a concrete alternative to those orthodoxies. That in some ways that's a very impoverished, pragmatic, dirty sort of solution. Um, you stack examples of this kind in pages three through five. Embarrassingly, it's an argument I've made, so I I feel spoken to in a, in a great way. Uh, why do you think this has become so ubiquitous in our writing? And why do you think we should question this refusal to offer a clear goal for our political and aesthetic projects?
1: I mean, I wrote three books that ended there, too. So you're not the only one. <laughs> My first three books all imagined that this kind of opening to another world is the best that we can do. Um, And I got to say, I still think it's really important. So I don't want us to stop doing that. I don't want us to stop saying, you know, artworks really can just make us stop and think right and wonder and wonder in ways that don't just fit the patterns of the current world. Um, The question, I guess, for me is, is it too fast? A rejection of all the pragmatics, right? Is that really the opposite? Um, and I think for a lot of critics, it has been the opposite. So, you know, one of the one of the theoretical um, kind of resources that for me I started to see underpinning the whole field, and I was a little bit surprised was the frankfurt school and really specifically adorno i feel like adorno got into our heads at some point and even those of us who haven't read adorno (laughs) became adornians right there's something very seductive about the idea that you can't picture a better world you know are we're so stuck inside this world that if we even try we're just going to re we're just going to make it work again and so we can only find the limits we can only find the negations we can only find the kind of stoppages and that that is the work that art does Um, and i think i found that persuasive for a long time until i thought to myself um what if that disempowers us like what if what if what we're doing is saying yeah we can't go any further than that you know and then we were like, well, all these other people are going way further than that. We've got business people and engineers and we've got, you know, politicians and they're all going further than that. So either the problem, and maybe this is not an either, but a both, either the problem is I said to myself, we're not speaking to those people and getting them to see the limits of their thought. And then I thought, well, that's also true, right? In my own university, I've got plenty of colleagues who are engineers and scientists and policymakers and we don't talk about this foundational idea in the humanities that um, that you shouldn't plan and make programs because you're actually going to reentrench the dominant uh, values of your own moment. We've never said that to them. And why not? So that was one thing. And then the other thing was, why is that the only thing we can do? Is there another way to think about the artworks and what they do? Um, and that started to feel like, I don't know, uh, I've been persuaded by Jameson and Adorno and uh, and Fred Moten that we can't do this, but I don't know if that's true. And so it was really a sort of leap into uh, a really new and uncomfortable place for me to say, what if we abandon that? Uh, or, or didn't abandon it, but set it aside and did some other things. And of course, people have been doing these other things. That was also a surprise to me. Artists have been, you know, engaging in political action in all kinds of ways for a long time. And it was somehow only that I thought were really stuck. Um, you know, we got plenty of artists who, you know, Augusto Boal or um, or Bertolt Brecht or, um, you know, lots of, uh, of um, Black artists working in the Black arts movement, you know, where it's not separate, where activism and art are not separate. Um, and so uh, it really started to seem to me like, wow, this is like ideology, right? This is like Common sense to me, this opening and dissolution and upsetting of of conventional wisdom, it's so true to me that I can't think another thought, and that's why I started thinking another thought. Um, so, you know, the one huge worry that I have, um, and that I, I, I hope will keep talking about all of us in the profession is just, is this a selling out of the liberal arts? You know, is it part of what the liberal arts do? not to instrumentalize, you know, to give us a space for just thought and knowledge and and reflection that don't have to lead to some outcome. And, you know, I don't want to be the person who says, let's abandon that and go do this other thing. I really want to say, let's do both. Um, But that, of course, is
0: kind of an uncomfortable
1: (laughs) fence-sitting kind of position.
0: In the book, you talk about your own activism on campus, in particular, the divestment camp. That you were involved in at Cornell. In all my best days, I think of the university as as fulfilling some of the things you're talking about, being a pluralizing space, being a, a place where we can put up utopian kinds of communities and collectives. On my worst days, I feel very differently. But um, when you were in, involved in this divestment campaign, you were met with arguments against such activism that suggested div- divestment didn't go far enough and was too radical to be accomplished. So it wasn't radical enough, but it was also too radical. As you discuss in the book, it required many levels of coordination from direct action on the streets to collegial discussions and fancy Ivy League offices. I really loved that that sort of multi-level kind of survey that you're giving. Um, How do you reflect on the successes of that campaign? How do you see activism in relationship to your scholarship and teaching and admin work?
1: Yeah. Um, the the success part is, I think, the part that uh, changed me most. I mean, I feel like what I've inherited, and it's partly having been born in 1970, and so growing up under Reagan and like a whole, you know, very gloomy world picture, is the idea that activism doesn't work. Uh, and so... You kind of have to do it because it's the right thing to do, but it's not going to change anything. I mean, I think I grew up with that notion Um, and to realize that it's partly because our culture doesn't tell stories about activism in which we see successes. So we have, you know, some examples. Everybody knows something about civil rights, maybe something about women's suffrage. Right. But in some sense, those feel like a long time ago, you know a different moment, you know, somehow for gifted, charismatic leaders. I don't know what it is, but, you know, we have these theories about why it doesn't work anymore. But it does work. It still works. Um, And the question is, how does it work? What makes activist success work? Um, And so, you know, people, it's interesting to me that whenever I say I'm working on X, I'm working on Y, a whole crowd of people who are on my side, you know, politically in the same camp I am and and interested in politics will tell me it's not worth doing. Um and I think that actually feeds the inaction that you see, right? If you're if you start in on something and you feel stupid and naive for even trying, right? Then you think, well, I should be a smart person and a sophisticated person and I should stop. Right. Um So part of what I've been trying to do over the last few years is just really figure out what works and what doesn't work. What kind of power do we have? What kind of power don't we have? Who has power? Who has agendas? You know, and I think some of the critiques of the neoliberal university are absolutely right and really important. And then I think, well, there are also all kinds of people in the university who want it to be better uh, and who want to do a good job and have justice on their horizon and like how do you talk to them and what are they what are they up to um so the divestment campaign i think was particularly a learning experience for me because cornell had tried to divest in 2015 2016 which was before i had arrived and it had been a failure um but one of the scientists who had been very involved in that campaign whose name is robert warren howarth and he's a He's one of the scientists who showed the connection between methane, um, that is natural gas and global warming, fracked gas and global warming. Um, and I met him at a climate event, um, in like 20, what would it have been? 2019. Um, and he said, I think this is a good moment to try again and try divestment again. And I was really surprised. I, I thought, you know, other people are telling me we tried, so don't bother, right? The trustees, they're the same people they were five years ago. Why would you bother again? And Bob said, You know, some of those trustees have changed their minds. You know, I ran into one the other day and and he said, You know what, Bob, I think you're right. <laughs> and just the whole tide of public opinion has been shifting and this feels like a good moment. Um, and he turned out to be right. So what he had done was also to to get involved in kind of formal governance at Cornell, which was new to me, the particular forms that governance took at Cornell. And it was very specific. And he was the chair of the university assembly. Um, but as the chair of the university assembly, it meant he talked to the president of the university every week. And at some point, she's a computer scientist, very you know, a person of integrity, a person, a, a real intellectual, you know, somebody who who likes to think about things. And at some point she said to him, so tell me your arguments about climate change, <laughs> you know, over the course of a year of talking to her every week. And that was a crucial moment because he had her ear in a way that, that he wouldn't have otherwise. And um, and and you know we we had the students acting out on the streets doing lots of protests. Uh, we had the board of trustees who had kind of changed their minds. We Bob made me the uh, one of the members of the campus infrastructure committee, so I could start creating the argument for divestment. But anyway, it was really a a, a coordinated effort. And then we won in less than a year, which is really unheard of. All of the other, divestment campaigns that I know of are 10, 12 years in the making. Um, And so part of what I was doing on that campaign was kind of studying the forms, like what are the forms of the institution that we're working with Um, and how are, are we working with them? And so important to that was not to take defeat as anything other than information. You know, anytime we ran up against a wall that was information for us. But it wasn't all running up against a wall. And I think that's what most activism feels like, has always felt like to me. (laughs) It's like, you know, hitting your head up against a wall over and over again with a tiny little straggly crew of people who can't get anything done. Um, And now I think it's much more like, you know, and you'll forgive a a metaphor from the arts, uh, you know, it's much more like, putting on a concert, right? It's much more like getting a lot of different instruments together and playing a song uh, or, you know, or the university is a canvas, right? It's, you've got all these different pieces you can paint with and make something with. And just to think of ourselves as creative makers with the with the forms of the institution is what it really convinced me about. Um, and that doesn't mean there isn't a lot of frustration working in universities. It doesn't mean there's not a lot of hitting your head against the wall, but it does mean that I think a small, pretty small group of people can make pretty far-reaching change um, with the forms of the university
0: and other social forms. I, I love um, I love all of what you said, and especially, well, this, this reminder, don't take defeat as anything but information, activism as a, as a concert. We are creative makers and also just the, you know, what you said at the beginning about memorializing the history of activism, you know, Mm -hmm. telling that story, um, I feel oftentimes we're looking in other places for these traditions and stories and forgetting that the lived spaces we're in have long histories of activism. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, a key phrase in your book is when you have borrowed from Kyle Paulus White a collective continuance. What is collective continuance? And maybe you can give an example from the book.
1: Sure, absolutely. So um, I first started reading, um, you know, I'm not an Indigenous uh, uh, studies specialist myself. And so I was reading in a way like a lot of environmentalists who haven't been trained in Indigenous studies. I was thinking, I know there's a lot for me to learn and understand here, um, and I'll just start reading. I won't. <laughs> I didn't think it was going to uh, change the whole course of my research to read um, Kyle Powis White's uh, essay on food systems, uh, but it really reoriented me completely. So he argues, and it's really an argument about settler colonialism and how we can specify the injustices of settler colonialism. To think about how societies have ways of keeping themselves going over time and making sure that they have the resources for kind of intergenerational justice, meaning something simpler than I thought it meant, which is just like making sure your kids and your grandkids have food and water and education, right? All the kind of basic things, right? And societies figure out how to do that. And when they figure that out, if another society comes in and starts wrecking that for its own interests, It has done a grave injustice, right, not only to the people living there at that moment, but to many future generations to come. And so it occurred to me that one of the things that I had so imbibed as a literary critic, just so completely absorbed, was the idea that words like stability and predictability were bad words right like art is is there to get us out of those ruts and to think oh justice might actually depend on continuity like on making sure that generation after generation has what it needs um that was just a revelation to me and so i started to think about like oh what are the ways in which societies produce kind of uh material ways to to keep going over time. Um, and it just got me interested in things like water systems. You know, every society has had to figure out, every human community has had to figure out how to get water to the places where they live and to get rid of wastewater, right? That's just, it's a fact <laughs> of all human communities. So there I was, a literary critic. I knew better than to think in universal terms. And yet there I was thinking, oh my gosh, It's not that there's one way to solve the water problem, but it's that every society for collective continuance has had to figure out water. And climate change is destroying so many of the water systems around the world that have kept communities going for centuries, generations, millennia. Um, So I started to turn to the word infrastructure to give me uh, a kind of vocabulary for thinking about what are these social forms, these kind of built forms that allow us to pass on the capacity to have these basic needs met over time. And, you know, things like sewer systems, which are so not exciting. (laughs) I mean, they're not the stuff of uh, the usual aesthetic humanities work, right? Um, There's nothing beautiful about a sewer system, although I have started to find them beautiful, actually, I have to say. Um, But just to think like, oh, wow, this is this incredible invention that I take for granted because, you know, I turn on my tap and clean water comes out. It's partly a result of tremendous privilege, right? Uh, I, I happen to live in a community where the water is paid for uh, in a way that allows it to be clean. Um, and this is this extraordinary benefit to me uh that is actually endangered and that I don't take for granted and so how do I think about predictability like the fact that I really don't have to worry about the water coming out of my tap ever uh, you know day to day of course I worry about it when there's a plumbing problem and then I think, oh no, everything's gone wrong, right? But actually, it's the mir- the miracle is the other way around is that I don't have to think about it most of the time, and so it's kind of thinking about that stability and continuity over time, um, and how how those things free us to do other things. You know, the fact that I don't have to walk six miles to a river to get water, uh, like most uh, women in most societies around the world, means I can stay home and write. You know, and so it affords me this tremendous freedom. So. I want to think about art making as partly contingent on those uh, infrastructures of collective continuance.
0: Yeah, um, I, I have some um, colleagues, some uh, professor friends who are teaching in Jackson, Mississippi, and they've had this water, you know, crisis for for a while now, and um, it does totally restructure your like that loss of stability, you know, um, the way you can teach, the way you can organize your time. Um, yeah, an important, important thing to to think about. Um, absolutely. Um, in the book, you point out that universities are these palimpsest of different ideologies, different value systems, different structures of feeling. Uh, I learned the sabbatical seems to have its roots in the book of Leviticus. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Um, adjunctification springs from neoliberal economic motives. Um, for you, what does it mean to strive toward Urgent contemporary political goals like reducing carbon emissions from within such a temporally and politically multivalent institution like a university?
1: Yes, it's a good, good question. I think uh I sometimes worry that our most kind of uh dominant version of the politics of the university misses the way that it jumbles together these temporal systems. So I see them partly as an opening or a way of thinking about openings to change. Um, So if we think gloomily about (laughs) the neoliberal university, as I do and you do, I'm sure, and most people do and they're not wrong. um, We miss the fact, for example, you know, I think a lot about financial aid in a university like Cornell, um, which is, you know, It's not perfect. Um, Our students, many of them will leave with debt. But it is actually a wealth redistribution system, financial aid. It's a way of having a kind of sliding scale so that people who can't afford the full cost of an education. And one of the things I learned trying to study university budgets as one of our forms is that no student actually at a university like Cornell pays the full cost of their education, even the people who pay the full price. It's still that's why you need a huge endowment to cover all the other things, right? And so it's in a way uh, a kind of socialism or a little piece of socialism inside the neoliberal university. Um, And so I just want to hold on to what I think of as these jumbled together forms so that we don't feel like we're completely overtaken by one dominant system. Because if there are these other arrangements that are at work, and you know, are are reproduced every day like the dominant ones. That means we can remake the forms of the university. Maybe some little ones over here, some larger ones over there. We can protect the ones that matter. Um, you know, one of the places that I thought most about political forms was at the University of Wisconsin, where I taught for uh, many years, and where we had very strong labor protections. Um, that were a holdover from really the progressive era and the, you know, up through the 20th century. And then we had a Republican legislature that wanted to dismantle them and it actually couldn't. Um, And that was where I started thinking about stability. Like, I I am not not conservative in the sense that there are some things I want to conserve. You know, clean water is one (laughs) and labor protections are another. Right. So how does the university conserve some things that are good? even in the face of massive social change. Um, and then how could it or should it change um, is a different question from just like, change is good and conserva- uh, You know, conserving old things is bad, which is what I kind of grew up with, and instead a kind of more plural, like, where could we make, uh, how could we think about change in a kind of strategic way where we're actually seeing what the forms are around us?
0: That's wonderful. Um, and a wonderful invitation to, to think of those tensions as, as an opening. So that's, that's great. Um, when I teach environmental literature, we touch on topics such as land use, biodiversity loss, climate change, and environmental racism. Students invariably pick at certain articles or readings for, quote, not offering solutions. Um, one thing that I appreciated about your book is that you spotlight projects that have worked from Boston's Commonwealth Development to Utah's Housing First Initiative to this town in Belo Horizonte, which has addressed poverty. Talk to us about um, what these initiatives share and why they've proven to be so durable.
1: Yeah, so one of my favorite examples is the city of Belo Horizonte in Brazil, um, which I didn't really know anything about uh, until I started to read about um, sort of activist successes. I mean, it was one of the stories that I I kind of came across in browsing um, that they call themselves the city that ended hunger. Um, and to me, that was an immediately interesting headline. Uh, it's been bothering me since I was a teenager. We have enough food in the world and yet there are hungry people. Like, how is this? Right. And so here's a city that's ended hunger. How did it do that? Um and the more I read about it, the more I learned that a lot of cities have tried to end hunger, but this is one that has managed to keep its programs going for like 30 years, right? And what we expect often is that in any, you know, a great social justice project, right, You'll it'll go for a little while and then the next administration will come along and dismantle it. So the question was not Uh, just how did they end hunger, but how did they get it to last? Um, And so uh, part of what I learned was about the design of city administration, which, you know, I hadn't really thought about at all before, but um, the people who designed this um, food security system were very clear that they didn't want it housed in just one department of city government, so not just in... You know like the department of the environment or the department of transportation they wanted it in every single city department they wanted some piece of that to be dedicated to food security so the school system and the um and the housing uh department and the transportation department they're all connected around food security and that means it's really hard to dismantle so one of the (laughs) one of the brilliant genius aspects of that was not only do you have a kind of common thread across city government that all the different departments are working on and so can coordinate but you also have this sense that you can't just come along and say well we don't have money for that school food program anymore um i mean you can but the school food program is connected to the farm program which is connected to the housing program and like taking it apart is really hard so that was something that i thought was super interesting about sort of sustainability over time um but also more broadly, I think um, the Belle program and some of the other, like the Commonwealth um, social housing development in Boston, part of what they do is they think about how different social forms work together to sustain each other over time. So one of my favorite examples in Belle Horizont is um, there's a kind of subsidy for rural farmers program um, where if you're a small family farm and you're on the outskirts of the city, if you farm in a particular sustainable way and you produce food, uh, healthy food for city residents, you'll get a subsidy from the city government. And uh, one of the reasons this works so well is that it keeps those farmers on their farms uh, and making enough money to live you know, moderately well. It's not a it's not a huge subsidy. They're not living in the lap of luxury, um, but they're but they're able to survive. And in the past, and in other cities, when there's a big, uh, let's say, a climate impact or a big uh, economic downturn, the small farmers are often the ones who can survive, and they move into the city and start drawing on social services in the city, and then that becomes a big drain on city services. So by keeping them on the farm, you actually uh, free up some of the resources of, say, tax money that's coming into the city for the food program, which then allows more money to go back into the farmers. So it's a very well designed program in that the different parts of it kind of sustain each other over time. Um, So also if you get schools that are buying fresh vegetables from local farms, then the kids are healthier and then they're better able to you know stay in school and you know so it's just a kind of uh, you know what you might call a virtuous cycle of 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 elements but you have to actually design that that's not an accident that's uh, careful careful planning so to me that's the the kind of inspiring piece of it is you know design we often think of as sort of top down and uh i don't know um, um often associated with neoliberalism but i think there's ways of designing social worlds for collective continuance that imagine a kind of interrelated, almost like an ecosystem of human need, right, which we uh, often kind of compartmentalize and think of as all these different programs, housing over here and food over there and, you know, education over there, but we can think about them in an integrated way.
0: Yeah, I I love all of those points. The, the, The strategic choice to sort of embed a program in different departments, different groups. And I suppose also it's about um, bringing in as many stakeholders as possible. Like, so the rural farmer feels invested in the urban um, food program. Is that right?
1: Yes. I mean, I think that that's one of the puzzles uh, for me is how you build that. And I, I continue to kind of fret about it. I think Belo Horizonte has been smart about things like um, they have these popular restaurants where there's subsidized meals that anybody can come in and eat. And so, um, you know, three quarters of the people who eat there are poor. But, you know, if you're in a hurry and you're on your way to your fancy business, you can also have your lunch there and it's good food and it's at low price. And that destigmatizes the poor uh, the poor people who, who need to eat in a subsidized way. But I think one of the interesting things about it is that the way that those are designed, those restaurants, you sit at very long tables. And so you're always side by side with people who you don't necessarily know otherwise, right? And so you don't have to talk to them, but you can. And it might mean that a student is sitting next to an elderly person and across from a, an unhoused person and across from you know, a wealthy person and that you're actually building community that way also and political will by not, you know, segregation is in a sense the villain of my book, right? <laughs> I think like segregated forms are the forms that are worst for us um, because they allow us to live unequally. Um, and so, you know, how do you build political will? And I think there may be lots of different forms that do that. Um one of the oddities of Belo Horizonte, and this is one of the reasons I fret, is that um, the mayor who instituted some of these forms was actually kind of an autocrat. Like, he did not engage a lot of stakeholders. Now a lot of stakeholders are engaged. but it wasn't a long process of cons- consultation and i sometimes worry about that long process of consultation like weakening the ways in which you could actually build political will and so you know uh there're plenty of people in other fields who think about these questions too but it certainly is is one of the open questions for me that i would like to keep thinking about because i sometimes worry that the left you know we eat ourselves through uh kind of infighting, right? Because we can't agree in the consultative phase, right? And so like, what if somebody just comes along and installs it for us and it's good? Then do we <laughs> do we have a different relationship to it? Um, so, you know, losing a little bit of faith in uh, some of the ways that activists talk and think uh, in terms of stakeholding and, and consultation is part of what
0: haunts me. Yeah. Sabotage by subcommittee of the subcommittee of the subcommittee, right? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, routines get a bad reputation. Um, We're told they're stultifying, they're oppressive, they numb us to what's really going on. But routines, rhythm, call and response can also build solidarities and collective identities. For example, you talk about Kendrick Lamar's song All Right in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement.
1: Yeah, I feel like uh I, again, kind of grew up with this notion that routines were the worst thing, that the whole point of art was to, you know, from Shklovsky and defamiliarization up through the Frankfurt School up into our own time, the point of art is to jolt you out of routinized perception, right, is to wake you up. Um, and yet, pretty much all of the artists I have read about have pretty strict routines for making art, and I think academics too. You know, some of us. Uh, I'm I'm a quite routinized person. I get up every morning and I and I work. You know, for a certain number of hours. Um, and just kind of thinking about what's the relationship between the routines that we hate, it, we think are just the death of all. You know freedom and uh, spontaneity and value on the one hand, and then our own routinized practices that actually allow us to do kinds of all kinds of creative things got me started thinking about this. Um, And then got me thinking about political movements that work. And certainly the civil rights movement is a really great example of, um, you know, and I think a lot of younger activists have been worried about and concerned about discipline as one of the kind of watchwords of the civil rights movement but it really does work to get people to work together by adopting a kind of routine together right is by is by coordinating your actions and your and your um and your words and your that that builds power and so um song and rhyme started to seem to me like great uh you know for aesthetic forms for, repetition and bringing bodies and voices together in unison and you know they're not the most uh rhyme is certainly not the most valued poetic form uh, in my education. Um, but part of what it does is it allows you to remember and repeat things together with other people and that's part of marching, right You go to a protest and you you say a chant that rhymes or you sing a song together and that's part of what brings people together so, I really do want to think um, affirmatively about the affordances of routines and repetitions for solidarity and community. Um, I think we've been really good in the arts at thinking about how we shouldn't be oppressed uh, by rules and norms that are imposed on us. But we've been much less good at thinking about how you build power by putting yourself aside sometimes, right, and joining with other people in routinized or repetitive or predictable patterns that actually allow you to get some of the work done of uh, of putting pressure on politicians and corporations.
0: Yeah. Well, one thing I'd like to discuss with that chapter on routine is the um, plurality, the diversity of examples you draw on. You draw on Christina Rossetti's goblin market. You draw on uh, some of these woodcuts by uh, David Alfaro Um and so throughout the book, I think it's a, um, a wonderful technique that you're drawing from a, a wide chronological and geographic range. Can you talk about that first choice?
1: Yes, I mean I think it's it's a a, a dangerous choice or at least an unfashionable choice, right? I think uh, you know I I was trained in a field in a you know particular place and time and to think of uh, politics and art as located and specific to that place and time. But I've always been interested in how forms travel. Uh, They seem to me eminently portable um, and sometimes more portable than we'd like, you know, like (laughs) segregation moved around the United States pretty fast Um, or you know, the sonnet moves across time periods and across uh, borders. Um, the ghazal, which is, a, you know, a Persian and um, South Asian form moves west while the sonnet moves east, you know, like forms move. And so um, I really wanted to put a little bit of pressure on the idea that abstraction was always bad, um, which is, something I definitely had grown up with. the notion of kind of historical specificity and embodiment. Um, and I'm super interested in embodiment. I think forms are embodiments uh, of all kinds and that our bodies are engaging with forms all the time. Um, but that abstractions could help us to think about design, about designing better forms for collective life. Um, and that meant looking around. What are the resources? Have Is it really true that we can't imagine our way to a better design of collective life and it seemed to me like well no actually we have some pretty good designs let's look at, let's look at some societies that have done things well um and the bellarizont example was one um but also um you know uh the british welfare state which had all kinds of problems but also did some things really really well you know let's think about what those were and how those worked um Uh, So wanting to look for patterns and arrangements that afford uh, better ways of life is something I think I wasn't trained to do and I didn't know how to do it. But once I started looking, I started finding Um, and that prompted me to keep looking and to keep finding. And I do find that my students you know, every semester feel very hopeless about changing things for the better. And they can't really imagine their way to what better looks like. And so when we start to look at this looks better over here and that looks better over there. And we did this before. And, you know, this water system is really wonderful over here in, you know, Fez, Morocco. Let's (laughs) let's learn from that. Right. Um, And so I think the the danger of the kind of work that I do you know, I was very mindful always of the kind of post-colonial critique and and also the indigenous critique of like, you don't just wander into somebody else's world and take stuff, right? Like that's appropriation. Um, And you don't think, oh, I have this really good idea. I'm going to pose it on everybody else, right? Which is um, a kind of European imperialist model. And instead it was like, okay, but can we kind of learn with one another? Like, We tried this experiment. It worked over here. How could it work over here differently? Like, what could we learn from it that would work over here? And I think what was so vividly important to me was that clearly the global South has lots of lessons to teach people in the global North. So it was never going to be like, oh, you know... I, U.S. academic, am going to have all the answers. right? And then I'm going to make you uh, poor Brazilian learn from me. It was never going to be that. It was always going to be the other way around. But also appropriation doesn't look quite like appropriation if it's... Um, kind of lateral sharing, right? If it's not, I'm going to use your model and then make money from it and (laughs) not acknowledge you, it's instead going to be, okay, this community over here has solved a water problem. Um, Let's think about whether that would work in this other community that's suffering from more and more droughts, right? Like, Can we think about kind of community to community, uh, or as I learned from the um, originally Cuban movement, the Campesino you know, a campesino you know, movement, like peasant to peasant. Like what do we know about survival? What do we know about what to do in the face of um all kinds of shocks to the food system or to the water system that could help all of us figure out ways forward. Um so I hope I threaded that needle, I do worry about that. Uh
0: Ongoingly, I, I appreciate it. I had a deep appreciation for um, it, what I felt was respectful engagement and thoughtful engagement for, for what it's worth. <laughs> um, <laughs> to, continuing on that chapter, chapter four, you introduce the term historical defamiliarization and offer a wonderful close reading of the TV series called The Midwife. Can you tell us what that show is about and how it dramatizes uh, infrastructure in compelling and nuanced ways?
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, it's it's sort of my uh, it felt like a guilty pleasure. Uh, call the midwife because it's uh very sentimental and moving. Um, it's about a group of nurses who are working for the new British National Health Service after the Second World War, and they're going to people's houses and mostly uh helping pregnant women, although they and and women giving birth and postpartum, they sometimes are. It called in for other emergencies. Um, and every episode has a kind of story of, you know, usually one woman giving birth. Um, and the, it, I think it's in the very first episode of Call the Midwife. This was one of my uh, wide awake moments. Uh, uh, the, a mother has been in, a, a woman who's about to give birth, has been in a kind of an emergency situation. And uh, she's saved uh, by this um National Health Service. And she says to the doctor, "Um, I think she says, thank God for you, doctor. And the doctor says, oh, it's not me. Thank the National Health Service. So, and I feel like, oh, there it is. Right. It isn't an individual. It isn't God uh, in this story. It is the team of healthcare workers on their bicycles, the the telephone system that allows, you know, the person in the neighborhood to call the midwife to come and uh, save the person who is in a dangerous labor, who then, you know, the doctor eventually comes along and, and is there for the actual birth. But it's a whole system. And it is built, you know, part of what was interesting to me as a Victorian literature scholar uh, is that the TV show shows that the British welfare state isn't just some kind of modern invention. It builds on all kinds of institutions that have gone before, including these Anglican sisters who've been in the neighborhood giving health care for generations. Um, and it corrects the welfare state very deliberately corrects uh, the horrors of the Victorian workhouse. So it kind of is a learning institution, too. It's like, oh, we, we tried to take care of the poor this way. That was a disaster. Let's try it this way. Right. So that sense of like constant experimentation where you're thinking about um about a society that takes care of the kind of most kind of basic uh needs of 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 its people into the into the future intergenerationally um is dramatized in the series and one of the things i like most about it is that um every episode is kind of a tearjerker because the event it it's plotted intelligently where the event is something kind of sensational like a birth or a near death or something so you get all the excitement of you know your hospital drama um but you get this hum of infrastructure underneath it that allows everybody to come through it so it it um you know i'm trying to look for art forms that get us to appreciate the fact that we can turn on the water in our house and you and i will have clean water coming out of it or you know uh my kids get on the school bus every morning like i can rely on that and and so I forget it. And Call the Midwife is the show that kind of teaches us to appreciate this thing that's actually now gone. You know, the British have dismantled their national health system. And so that's part of why I think of it as historical defamiliarization. It teaches us how this thing was built and then also asks us to reflect on what we've lost and what we might need to rebuild or how we might rebuild something like it.
0: Yeah. It- Kind of reminds me of um, the the Boris Johnson um, COVID case. Do you remember that? Where you know he had spent so much of his political career railing against this infrastructure, and then um, of course he when he contracted COVID, there was a lot of um, Stadenfreude Freud uh, online about about his dependence on this thing that he had taken for granted.
1: And he had like one moment of acknowledging it himself, right? He had one. Moment
0: That's right. That's right.
1: Moment. Yes, I'm not sure it quite translated into right. the national Health service, which is what you would hope for. But yes, I do remember that.
0: Yeah. Well, I am there for any movie about a down and out sports team who makes good on their potential. I I did not need a reason to rewatch Ted Lasso or Friday Night Lights, but you gave us a great one in the activist humanist you write. Uh, quote, and the narrative of the struggling team shows how the pleasures of repetition could become a model for political action, a blueprint for organizing ourselves into resilient and successful political collectives, end quote. What do these movies dramatize or narrate that could be exportable for activist and political organization?
1: Um, Yeah, so I can't remember which was the one that kind of got me thinking about this, but it might actually have been fame, which is like from 1982 or 83, something like that. Um, where uh you got a bunch, I mean, this is the familiar plot, you got a bunch of misfits, right? They have some talent, but they're not really, <laughs> they're not really coming together, right? And so often it's a charismatic coach or a team leader who gets them all working together, right? Um and what I was fascinated by is that the moment of working together is not only about the charisma of the coach. It's about the, what we could call the discipline of the team, right? Everybody has to start to figure out how to work together. And so you get the montage scenes of the practices and the free throws over and over and over again, right? It's repetition, it's routine. Um, It's very organized. And so I started to think about how surprising it is that First of all, this is a plot that uh, is incredibly popular and seems to be evergreen and, you know, a new one all the time and all over the world. It's not only a U.S. uh, plot um, and it's all about how to work together with other people. So and particularly coordinating your actions to work with other people. And I thought this is so interesting because one of the problems I see in stories about activism, public, you know, like, you know, how we tell the story of Rosa Parks or how we tell the story of um, Cesar Chavez as we individualize activism so that it becomes about a particular hero. And, you know, these are amazing people. I don't want to take anything away from Rosa Parks. But there was a huge movement that made her action meaningfully transformative. Um, And so thinking about, wow, we have this resource in popular culture that people love, that it's all about coming together for a goal. And why don't we think of this in literary studies or in cultural studies as a kind of inspiring blueprint for action? Because that's actually what we need to do. We kind of all know that. We kind of know we have to work together. Um, We use the word collectivity all the time in our fields, but we don't think about how to do it or what it takes. And I think that's partly because one of the things that or a couple of the things that it takes are things we don't like in literary studies, like a goal, right? We don't like teleology that seems oppressive and containing. We don't like repetition and routine and practice. Um, that also feels confining. But I think fame was really important to me because it, I, I know I watched it as a kid and it was really about um, coming together about making art, right? That's what it does in the end. Um, it's So anybody who's been in an orchestra or a choir knows that you actually have to practice together at set times <laughs> and do the same passage over and over again to get it right. Uh, and so it was like, oh, wow, we know this in the artistic fields. We know how you make something beautiful together. Uh, let's use it.
0: And I suppose there's also... Um you know, the element of sitting shoulder to shoulder in those movies. And, you know, you were kind of talking about the the lunch counters and uh, Belo Horizonte. Um, there's those scenes where the athletes have to extend care outside of the context of the sports arena, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, right. Because whole communities are
1: in a way, you know, they're it's hard to represent communities. I think in narrative, it's a it's just a narrative problem, right? It's easier to give us protagonists. Um, but the sports team or the debate team or whatever the team is, the dance team, um, it brings together communities who are, uh, you know, pictured in lots of different ways as crucial to the ultimate performance, right. So there's the home life that can either get in the way or support the player. There's the fans in the stands who rise to their feet in rapturous applause, you know, to be at one with the community. And so, um, I guess part of the thing I had to think through and I eventually thought my way through it to my own, you know, temporary satisfaction was does the team have to win? Like, does it have to be a story about competition? I don't think it does. I think even when the team loses, you still get that. <laughs> Rousing community collectivity moment. Um, and so uh, I started to want to, you know, kind of disaggregate what we think of as ideology to different forms, some of which can be put to use for, you know, a, a progressive rev- or revolutionary ends and some which keeps us, you know, contained within the prison houses
0: of the status quo. book concludes with a workbook that helps readers work through their knowledge and experience and their reluctance and concerns about collective action. Uh, what inspired the choice of including a workbook, and how do you see it working in the context of the activist humanist? Um,
1: Yeah, so I thought to myself uh, about my own kind of path to activism and would ask people, you know, I I would hear some of the same themes from people over and over again when I would talk to them about activism. So I would hear people say, I just don't have the temperament for it, or, you know, I'm really good at scholarship, I'm really good at studying, or I'm really good at making art, you know, I'm not good at this activism thing. Um, And I continued to hear that. as I myself kind of started to shift more and more and more and more and to realize that I had used those same or you know, that and there's another theme, which is, you know, activism doesn't work. You know, there's nothing I can do that is meaningful. I'm powerless. I don't have any real power to change things. So these were some of the themes that had been in my head for a long time. Um, and um, I started thinking, you know, nobody has the temperament for activism. It's maybe some people do but it's really hard and it's like not it doesn't come naturally to anybody you know to yell at somebody (laughs) in a in a group of people maybe there are some people and maybe that's why activists get a bad name but like I hate it but I do it because now I think it works you know and so trying to get us out of the sense that there are like some people are naturally gifted at this it's like you know being a violinist um and instead to think no this is a training this is something you know no civil disobedience movement has really succeeded without a lot of training um and the idea that we should somehow just drift into it because we have a talent for it no it's a it's work like all kinds of other things and it's practice and it's um and it's learning some of the the habits of successful activists or 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 learning from them and thinking about what works, that looks like a workbook to me. That doesn't look to me like, a, like an argument. That looks like, okay, what are the things that get in the way? What do I know about activism? How do I start? Um, one of the things I learned from the climate change um, psychology research is that um, something that felt really true to me just on an anecdotal level, is that when we think of our future selves, we think of them as different people from us. Um, And so we actually think to ourselves, oh, you know, I'm really busy right now, uh, but in six months I'll put solar panels on my roof, right? But actually in six months you're going to be the same person with the same busyness. Um, And so this, this question of starting is really one of the hardest things, right, is how to break out of the patterns of the present and do something different from what you've always done. Um, and so I wanted to figure out how to start, like, what is it that gets people started? Um, and, you know, I I read um, uh, different kinds of sociological studies and studies of activism, and it looks like um, there isn't a, a magic bullet. <laughs> um, but I try to kind of Uh, figure out what some blockages to getting started might be and to figure out how you might overcome those blockages. So one of them, which will be familiar to you, as I'm sure to every other busy academic is I don't have time, right? Like right now I'm just super busy. So I was very interested to learn that when you ask people, and this is something I do with my classes every semester, do you have an hour a month? Everybody will say yes. You know, uh, 10 hours a week? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, an hour a month, an hour a week. A lot of people think, you know, I really could fit in an hour a week. Um, and so just thinking, OK, that's a that's a commitment. If it feels reasonable to you, um, you could make and you could make it not even every month, every week or every month. You could say 10 months of the year, I'm going to give an hour, right? What would that look like what would meaningful change look like well it certainly wouldn't mean starting an organization or some huge heavy lift like that and that got me thinking well actually you know why do we think that that's the kind of action you should do i mean i think a lot of people have that in their heads and and one of my friends said to me you know it might be partly a result of um the college admissions process for a lot of us that you're told you should have leadership experience in your high school organizations in order to get into a fancy college. Um, And that was even true back in my day. And so, you know, a lot of our students come to us with that sense of like, I'm supposed to start an organization or lead an organization. I was like, you don't need to lead anything. You just need to get, you know, group with a whole bunch of other people and somebody else can be taking the lead, you know, but if you would spend an hour making phone calls or um you know, it used to be stuffing envelopes. Now we don't do that. Uh, (laughs) That's the kind of kind of grunt work that for an hour a month is a huge help to an activist organization. Like maybe that's part of the, the, you know, recipe for getting people started. So that's what the workbook tries to do. It tries to get uh, kind of easy small steps towards what might be getting in the way and what you might actually find yourself willing to do even in a busy life
0: i like that uh, and it almost reminds me of a sort of um a sort of art uh art teaching course or something like that building those um maker capacities that you're talking about that's great um I'd like to talk to authors about writing practice and your work has been, uh, very important to me forms as a book that, you know, I should be paying you royalties probably or um, the, the term affordances I've used so frequently. Um, how do you approach the writing of academic prose? Um, who are some writers that have inspired you and what techniques or practices do you think, um, are important to your craft?
1: Ah, yes. I love that question. And it's one of the, uh, I think it's one of the things you can't see from a finished book, right? is how you get there. And it's actually kind of mystifying, I always think, to undergraduates and graduate students to look at these finished products and not to have any idea what went into them. Um, I Yeah, it's a, such a great question. I think um, I have never written quite the way I was supposed to. I was, Of told by my dissertation advisor that I should stop writing the way I was writing because it was too like flat-footed, kind of too prosaic, you know, not complex and sophisticated and philosophical enough. Um, and she really wanted me to engage with Hegel in my dissertation, which I did and learned a tremendous amount. But as soon as I was done with my dissertation, I thought, I don't want to write this way anymore. I want to write to reach people. And I don't know why. I don't know why that's such an urgent desire of mine. But and I don't know why, because I live in an academic world and most of the people I'm reaching can read really complicated, sophisticated prose. Like I don't have to do this. But there's something about um the the ways in which well, there were a couple of things that used to bother me, and I and I don't think that they're widely true but they used to worry me like are people hiding behind beautiful prose you know is there something about not taking responsibility so um I've used the first person a lot in my writing and I use active voice and first person and I think it's to take responsibility is to say who am I writing you know like what a (laughs) not just here's an impersonal argument, but here's me situated trying to write this. So I think there's a kind of long history of feminist um, and Black activist writing that does that too, that's been inspiring to me. And some of the experiments of people like Rachel Blau du Plessis, Susan Friedman, who was my colleague at Wisconsin, a lot of kind of writing experiments to try to think about what it is that academic writing could be. And I don't do very experimental things, but I do think not being locked into one form or not being locked into a particular structure of argument has been part of reading experimental academic writing, um, has always felt, you know, uh, Fred Moten and Stefano Harney's The Undercommons. That's like a an interesting experiment in collaborative writing that also doesn't fit into the traditional essay format. Um, So uh, I think in terms of models, it's kind of a whole hodgepodge of people. But in the end, it has been maybe partly, you know, after every sentence, I think, I ask myself, is that true? Um, I always want to (laughs) be... I always want to persuade myself. Uh, and I think earlier in my career, I wrote some sentences that I didn't believe. Um, and I kind of knew it. I wrote them because they were expected of me. Or I wrote them because, you know, and I think one of the great privileges of having tenure and and being able to write what I want uh, and how I want is that really that sense of, like, I only want to say what I really am persuaded of, um, which doesn't mean I can't be persuaded of something else next week. Um, but it has meant that my writing has continued to be this kind of, like, I I strive more than anything else to be clear to myself so that I don't lie to myself so that I don't, you know, and it's not that I don't think that complicated ideas don't need complicated sentences. So I don't want to undermine that position. But I guess I think I'm trying to believe I'm trying to say the truest thing I can. Um, and that ends up with this kind of plain style of prose. Um, and I have a friend who's a much better Marxist than I am. I'm sort of always Marxist adjacent. Um, and she tries to write a dialectical prose. And I think it's not an accident that I don't write a dialectical prose, you know, that I, my my heart is not in the dialectic enough. Um, So I think we can read the structure of ideas in the prose of many of the academics that we read, but it's hard sometimes to figure out what that is. Um, So, you know, now I've I've so grown into a kind of like pragmatic, let's get together and change the world (laughs) mood that my writing is also like, let's try to say it as clearly as possible. Let's be repetitive. You know, I often self-plagiarize. I will often take something I've already worked out and put it in something else and I don't feel bad about that. I think repetition is not a bad thing. I don't think originality is everything. I don't think I have to work to say it a different way once I've learned how to say it one way, you know. So, I do think that imprint of the ideas are on the prose. Um but I think as far as writing itself is concerned, you know, um, I, for many years felt like there was no room for my voice and I felt very defeated by the gatekeepers and by the sense that it was impossible to say things in a way that could be heard if you weren't already part of the insider academia. So my first book was turned down 13 times. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not quite sure why I stuck it out. <laughs> in your retrospect, I think that there was that was information I should have taken in. um, but what's good about it is, you know, sticking it out. um I did get a chance to do things a little differently from what, you know, I just kept i I would certainly accommodate myself to some of the requirements of academia. I, it wasn't like I just did my own thing, but I I kept wanting to do my own thing. I didn't just fit into a box that was given to me by somebody else and stay there. I was constantly kind of like not fitting. And I think that's good practice for being an activist, you know, because you have to kind of not fit when you're an activist. You have to kind of be a troublemaker. And so <laughs> I I, you know, my path is not was not smooth and it was probably not even smart. But uh but I think it in the end I write slightly peculiar books, and I'm glad that that's what I can write, and I'm lucky, but I also hope that others will also write slightly peculiar books.
0: That's awesome. Um, I, I imagine you're um, a, a wonderful advisor to graduate students. This seems like wonderful advice. I, uh, I would love to hear it. I'm sure many um, early career scholars feel heard and um, feel their thoughts echoed in what you're saying. Um, I've I've looked at um, one of your syllabuses, and and we were talking about the gazelle um, earlier, and I know that's um, integral to some of the classes that you teach, um, forms across um, geographic and cultural traditions. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about teaching, your approach to teaching?
1: Oh, sure. Yes. Um, Yes, I am a I am a kind of tinkerer. Uh, <laughs> I always love, I love teaching undergraduates and graduate students things I ha- I don't know yet. Uh, so I never, I'm not a teacher who comes with a, with a preformed idea or even my own expertise often doesn't, you know, I, 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 uh, I tend not to teach so many classes in my own home field of Victorian studies. Um, and part of that is had to do with demand, you know, so many of our traditional fields, don't have students coming through the doors anymore. And so part of what I've been trying to do is to reach students where they are using the humanities modes of thought, but not necessarily the objects that we've always been attached to. Um, And one of the things I noticed at Wisconsin is that students are very hungry to talk about culture, but they often feel in a way that I didn't feel when I was in college, that older more distant canonical materials are scary, right? Intimidating, right? And so I think it's partly my generation, it's partly that my father was a professor, but when I went to college, I didn't think the courses were not for me. You know, I thought any course that was in my major (laughs) was something I could take. And now with a lot of first-generation students and students coming from lots of different walks of life, I think, oh, right. It's that when we have a course called the 18th century novel, they actually don't know what that is and are worried they might not it might not be for them, right? And so having titles for courses that are that are inviting and that say, here's a kind of culture that you do know, let's tie it to a culture that you don't, seems to me like the way to teach all kinds of things, you know. So if you um oh, one great example at Wisconsin was my colleague uh, who taught a course called Beowulf to Tolkien, right? And there were huge numbers of Tolkien fans. I mean Tolkien fans coming out of the uh, out of the woodwork, uh, more the concrete work at Wisconsin, um, and they wanted to talk about Tolkien, who doesn't want to talk about Tolkien. But this was an Anglo-Saxonist who also taught them a lot about Anglo-Saxon culture and about Beowulf, and Tolkien was an Anglo-Saxonist, and that's just an example to me of um, a kind of way to think about our students that isn't just oh they don't want what we have anymore, or either that or, you know, we have to force them into, you know, they're missing this important thing. It's to say, let's put things together in combinations that that can speak to that hunger to discuss culture and and values, uh, which I think is really alive. And so I do a lot of teaching of popular culture. So it's a long way of, of saying I do a lot of teaching of popular culture, Um, because I think it's a resource for thinking about all kinds of things. I don't think it's a degraded, you know, just ideological, you know, hammer. Uh, And I also think it's a way to ask questions that are gateways to all kinds of other cultural materials. So, you know, um, once you've started on your Tolkien, you might end up with Beowulf, and that would be great. (laughs) It's not the only place to end up, but it's it's one of the many wonderful places you can end up. So part of my fascination with world literature, and I'm one of the editors of the Norton Anthology of World Literature, is just how literature travels and gets written in one place in time, but then ends up being read by people across the world who use it for other purposes and make new values out of it and make new meanings out of it. And that, to me, has always been part of the excitement of culture. And so um, it's it's one of the ways that I organize a syllabus is to think about you know, how do we make these crossings, and how do we think about different audiences and different places, and and who we are
0: receiving these
1: objects? Uh, what can we do with them, and what can we make with them, and how
0: can we think with them? Being more intentional about about those groupings, yeah, that's that's wonderful. Um, now that this book is out in the world, um, what are you turning your attention to? Is there a book, an article, a class, a hobby? <laughs>
1: Well, I think you won't be surprised to hear me say it's more activism. Um, <laughs> climate crisis, sadly, is not going away. Um, and so I i am putting a lot of attention to that. I think what I really want to do now is to keep thinking about what was in the fifth chapter of the book that I just published, which was sort of like what organizing forms work? You know, what 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 allows activists to succeed? Um, and really trying to figure out more and more examples of that and and more and more instances on the ground right now around climate justice. So, you know, I spent this summer thinking about something that I knew was an issue, but I had put to the side which whether is whether divestment actually reduces carbon emissions or not. Um, And it may not. uh, But does it have other effects anyway? Like, is divestment worth doing? Right. I want to ask that question. Um, I want to ask questions about how, you know, one of the fascinating things I discovered in teaching is that economists have predictions about the impact of climate change on the economy that are completely out of sync with the predictions about what's going to happen to the world that you find in climate science. So economists say if we have a six degree rise above pre-industrial temperatures, uh, that'll hit the world economy by 10%. Uh, if you ask a climate scientist what six degrees above pre-industrial levels means, it means there are no humans. Um, So, like, how is it that we have these huge gaps between disciplines where what our knowledge needs to do is to come together? And so I want to think about that. Like, how do those of us who are scholars at the, already at the interstices of different disciplines can participate in the actual speaking to each other that we need to do. Right. Economists need to know what climate scientists are saying. They can't just read their own peer reviewed uh, information. And that is surprising to me because I kind of think, oh, academics are, you know, going about their business in in ways that make sense. I think, no, we need some restructuring of the ways that our knowledge works. And so that's the kind of place I'm headed next, I think. Um, And I'm never going to give up my interest in narrative. I I think I will die with (laughs) an interest in narrative. So that's not going anywhere. Um, But weaving it through all of these other uh,
0: questions. Absolutely. We'll um, keep our eyes out for those projects. Uh, Thank you for a wonderful conversation, Caroline.
1: It's been such a pleasure, John. I really enjoyed talking to you.